According to a new report, during the coronavirus lockdown, audiences watched 7.46 billion hours of live streamed content. Billion with a B. That is not during the whole thing either. That's during one quarter of 2020. Three months. That's, that's insane. 7.46 billion. For context, there are 876,000 hours in a century. Which means that in just three months' time, we watched roughly 8,500 centuries worth of content. The most popular by far was Twitch, which you are maybe not familiar with. It is people watching other people, usually that they don't know, play video games. Maybe it's great entertainment, maybe it's not. Others were Netflix, of course, and YouTube and, and Facebook video. All of these things brought us to the point of watching billions of hours. And, and then I think about all of the little posts I saw, little inspirational things about quarantine and lockdown and how Sir Isaac Newton invented calculus during a plague while he was quarantined. Do something like that. Oh, okay, I'll invent a new math, right? Or all these different theologians who wrote books that were significant and, and wonderful. And, and you need to do something like this. Take the time that you have as a gift, not as a punishment. And there were people who, what they did was grow a giant beard. And that was a source of pride. I don't know how much work that is. You simply stop shaving. I did not grow a quarantine beard, but that is because my beard comes in in five smaller beards that are not connected, and it looks stupid. But the pressure was really on, I think, to take the time and use it well. I don't know that I did. I think I used it a little bit below the level of efficiency that I usually use time. I was distracted. I was a bit depressed. I don't know about you. But when we read in the scriptures today about time, we find that that is not unique to a particular time of lockdown or quarantine or a season when you are stuck somewhere and have to make use of the time. We are called to redeem the time all the time. The text begins by warning us to carefully watch how we walk. Now, I'm not going to rehash yet again the significance of this word to walk in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere, how it means how we live our lives, our everyday conduct as we're walking around. If you missed last week's sermon, it's on the website. Really, the walking impression alone is worth your time or, or not. Maybe that wouldn't be redeeming the time. But this seventh and final, the number of completion, this seventh and final uh, message about walking, this final use of the word to walk, further expounding on his earlier command to walk worthy of our calling, begins like this. Carefully look how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now, to begin with, it almost sounds like information you wouldn't need to give someone. Don't be unwise. Be wise. He's going to need to expound on it, and don't worry, he is. But remember that in the New Testament, Paul is continually contrasting the so-called wisdom of the Greeks, who were known for wisdom, the way that like Philly cheesesteak sandwiches are synonymous with Philadelphia. But that wisdom, which is really foolishness, Contrasting that with true biblical wisdom, which the world thinks is foolishness. So that's a little confusing. And of course, he's going to tell us to look carefully then at how we walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And notice he doesn't say walk not as someone who's stupid, 
but as someone who's knowledgeable. There's a difference between being knowledgeable and being wise. Knowledge and wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs, and it's played out at length. Now, they're related, certainly. Wisdom is perhaps applying true knowledge to our lives, applying it in a way that is moral as much as it is mental. When we look at knowledge and we look at wisdom, yes, there's overlap, but a lot of the smartest people are actually the biggest fools. The smartest people who invent things that blow our minds, the smartest people who make the billions of dollars with their amazing ideas are often the most foolish as we see their lives unfold in the public sphere because they lack wisdom and discernment. Many of the most big-brained have said in their hearts, there is no God, which is kind of biblical baseline for what it looks like to be a fool. Proverbs 14.9 tells us fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. To be foolish means to not enjoy the acceptance of God, to mock at the guilt offering. And of course, the guilt offering finds its climax, its perfection, its accomplishment in Christ's death on the cross. The world mocks Jesus on the cross. The world mocks the notion of salvation. But those who are upright enjoy acceptance. Again, we must be careful here. 1 Corinthians 2, we read, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we think, yes, this is important information. This is an important imperative. Be not unwise, but wise. But we need some details. And that's why it's good that he continues into verse 16. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Making the best use of time. You may, like I, have, uh, way back in, in my childhood, and maybe for you it was way, way back in your childhood, uh, you may have memorized this in the King James. Redeeming the time. Right? You make the best use of time, redeeming the time. The NIV uh, says making the most of every opportunity. The word translated here, make the best use of time, can mean to purchase or to redeem. To buy back, literally. Buy up or buy out. When I hear this word, I think of the end of the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth and Naomi... They've lost essentially everything in their lives. They come back home, and even when they arrive back home, their ancestral lands no longer belong to them. They have been sold to cover their family's debts. They're gone, and they need someone, a kinsman redeemer, to come and buy them back, to marry Ruth and bring this, this stuff back into her line. And so Boaz is the man. He comes, he buys the land, he marries her, and he is her redeemer in a sense foreshadowing what Jesus will do, redeeming. Or I think of a savings bond. At any time, the U.S. Treasury will redeem a savings bond, buy it back, and give you the money. In the New Testament, this word redeem, or buy up, or buy out, generally refers to Jesus buying us back. We belonged to him. He created us in his image. We sinned, turned away from him, and he bought us back, even at the price of death on a cross. So how then do we tie something as big as that to efficient use of time? Which seems to me like something, you know, it's, it's like number eight on the review that your boss gives you. Hmm, efficient use of time, I'll give you three out of four, or something like that. You know, that seems important, but not this important. And yet, perhaps it is. 
I think that the NIV captures one aspect of this verse well by translating it, making the most of every opportunity. You don't know how many opportunities you will have. You don't know how much time you'll be granted. You don't know how many days you are going to wake up. But you can make the most of each one. But it's not just opportunities that we're trying to redeem. During these evil days, we are to redeem the days themselves. After all, what is a day but a chunk of time? When Jesus came, he came to redeem all of fallen and broken creation and bring it back to where it should be, to a place of harmony and shalom. Not just people's souls. The story of the Bible is a story of creation, fall, and redemption. God creates and it is good. We fall into sin. The curse comes. Things are fractured. And then comes redemption when Jesus comes. When Jesus makes things right. Just as God has redeemed us who were once wicked and working against him, so we can redeem these wicked days. We can buy them back and use them for their intended use. Remember, the Bible starts with this story of creation in the, the course of days, right? God creates, he surveys it, says this is good, and we read, and there was evening and morning the first day. Then he creates, this is good, there's evening and morning the second day, and the third day, and on and on. Each day was created as something to give glory to God. It was intended to bring him praise, but it's now under enemy occupation, and we need to redeem the days. And while it was important, of course, for Ruth and Naomi that Boaz should redeem their fields and give them back their ancestral property, I would argue that time is far more valuable than land. If my family lost our home today, if if we were foreclosed on and forced to leave, if we worked hard enough and saved industriously enough, we could at one point buy it back and have it once again. Not so with time. Once it's gone, it's gone. There is no getting it back. If we're going to redeem it, we have to redeem it as it comes. We have only the one opportunity. And this is something we don't talk about much in the church, and yet we should, because it is a major theme in the Bible, it is a major theme in Christianity. The Christian religion is especially concerned with time. Think about all the Canaanite religions surrounding the people of God in the Old Testament and the majority of pagan religions surrounding Ephesus and the church of the New Testament. These things were all wrapped up in cycles of the moon and the stars and the sun and the seasons and the harvest. There's always going to be another new moon. There's always going to be another hard winter. There's always going to be another sacrifice to make. It goes around and around. The grand story of these religions is like when Windows is loading and that circle is spinning, but it's not really loading and it just goes and goes and goes. That's the grand story of the world's religions. Christianity is different. It's going somewhere from the very beginning. And so God is working in time with his people, and the climax of that is God himself stepping into time in the person of Jesus, dying on a cross and rising again. This is what the apostle was talking about way back in chapter 1 when he spoke of God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so when we redeem the time, we are taking part in that great purpose. Following Jesus means buying back 
that time. I think it's kind of ironic that we use the exact opposite analogy when we talk about time. We don't talk about buying it, we talk about spending it, right? How do you spend your time? But we mean essentially the same thing, that you have a very limited amount, and the question is, what will you do with it? Will you squander it? Are you just filling time? Are you killing time? Or are you investing it in something of value? The reason behind the exhortation is, to me, kind of counterintuitive. I would expect to read, redeeming the time even though the days are evil. Right? Yeah, the days are evil, but you can still redeem some of the time. No, he says redeeming the time because the days are evil. This wisdom he's exhorting us to have, this wisdom is all the more essential living in a wicked age as we do. When sin is celebrated as good, and even taught to children when proclaiming the gospel and holding to the truth rooted in the love of Christ is called hateful and earns you scorn and ridicule and worse, just as Jesus promised us it would. In that situation, it's not always clear exactly what is the best path forward. You can look into the distance toward the horizon and say, I don't see where the light really is. It's hard to find it and follow it. But... If we look at each opportunity to glorify Jesus, to magnify his name, to proclaim his gospel of salvation, we can redeem the time. And we can redeem the time the only way we can, the only time we can, in the present. Because the days are evil. Oh, and aside, of course the days are evil. This verse throws that out there like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Reminds me of when Jesus is teaching on how we pray and God gives us good things. He talks about human parents. And he says, if, you know, if your son asked for an egg, you wouldn't give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven? And he just throws that in there. Yeah, you know, you, you, well, you're evil. Here, Paul does the same thing with the times. Yeah, the days are evil. How can Christians continually be appalled by this? I am baffled by this sort of pearl-clutching astonishment that I see continually among Christians. Whenever our culture stumbles another few feet down into depravity. Back in chapter 2, he talks about this world being under the leadership of the prince of the power of the air. The god of this world, Satan himself. The world itself is corrupt. But we're not here as color commentators or critics whose job it is to sit back and bemoan the state of things. That's not us. We're the solution. Not the commentators. Can you imagine a, a firehouse full of firefighters sitting around, all just grumbling and complaining about how very many fires there are roaring in this city? The fires are just eating this city alive. Can you believe it? It's an outrage. No, they wouldn't be in this firehouse doing that. They're supposed to be out fighting fires. The same thing is true of the church. The scriptures presuppose that the days are evil. That's the starting point. Christians, then, don't need to go to great lengths trying to prove this or illustrate it or grumble about it. We have to redeem it. This grand meta-narrative of Scripture is not creation, fall, and whining. It's creation, fall, and redemption. This reminds me of the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo, faced with this horrifying reality that evil is advancing and advancing and it looks like it may come crushing down on everyone. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. 
And Gandalf says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. In verse 17, he carries on this, do this, not that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Redeeming the time means understanding the will of God. Not his secret will, not the mystery of his counsel, which is far beyond our ability to grasp, but his revealed will, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. We see this distinction in Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. And yes, these things are spiritually discerned, but they are practically lived out. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice the continued coupling here. In verse 15, do not be unwise, but wise. You see the connection between those two things? Yeah, pretty easy, right? Verse 17, do not be foolish, but have understanding. Got that. This one's a little bit more out there. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, I think the answer is that more than once, this letter has tied the Spirit's control of us as believers, the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, with our speech. When the Spirit is at work renewing our minds and hearts, it will necessarily have an impact on what we say. And perhaps the opposite is true of when we drink too much. People tend to lose that firm control on their speech, to revert to one's basest, most sinful and impulsive mind, and through that loss of self-control into all sorts of sin. And I'm glad that in the church we're moving beyond the pharisaical old fundamentalism that says, you know, beer is the devil's brew. And, you know, if a, if a Baptist couple has a glass of champagne on their anniversary, they're like, don't tell any other Baptists. We'd be in trouble. I'm glad we're leaving that behind. It's nonsense. The Bible makes that clear. For most believers, there's no danger in it. In fact, wine has great health benefits if you drink it in moderation. And Jesus himself drank actual alcoholic non-Welch's wine on a number of occasions, even made some out of water. But I'm afraid we're going to the opposite extreme now. And this tends to be how we do things as humans, going to the extreme of using our freedom, our liberty in Christ as license, which Scripture warns us against, overcorrecting. It's not cute for a follower of Jesus to drink too much to the point of intoxication. It's not funny when a believer has too many drinks and starts acting foolish. Oh, you should have seen him. Oh, it was hilarious. The Bible makes that even clearer. And when we think, oh, you know, it's my day off. Oh, I had a hard week. Hey, I'm on vacation. I'm going to get drunk. It's debauchery according to the scriptures. We may as well say, hey, I'm on vacation. I'm going to commit adultery. In fact, one may very well lead to the other. And I realize that Lent is a quarter of the way done now, but if the Spirit uses this passage to convict you, perhaps a late addition to Lent might be to abstain entirely from alcohol for the remainder. If you're convicted, there's no rule against being late to Lent. If there were, I mean, we're Baptists anyway. We're like the mavericks of the church calendar. We, we do what we want. But perhaps it would be a good idea to set it aside for a time to test whether you are relying on it for rest 
and comfort and courage or anything else that should come from God, not out of a bottle. In many ways, alcohol is like anger. Remember a a little earlier here in Ephesians. Paul says, be angry and sin not. And we, we talked about how for many people that's easy, but for a lot of people that's very difficult, myself included, to get angry but not to sin. And the longer you continue to be angry, the more likely you are to fall into sin. If you're truly in control, it's not sinful. But for many, it's leading themselves right into temptation. We can pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, as Jesus told us to pray, and then turn around and lead ourselves right down that path. If you have found yourself losing control of who you are, saying things that you wish you hadn't said because of drinking too much alcohol, perhaps it would be a good idea then to put it aside for the remainder of Lent. But on top of that, for many of these Ephesian Christians, they came out of paganism. Probably most of them did. Their quote-unquote worship then looked like drunken orgies that supposedly invoked the presence of the pagan god. This is what the apostle calls the cup of demons in 1 Corinthians 10. So they had a former association. And the same is true for many Christians. If they had a former association and a former life of, of partying and debauchery and all sorts of rebellion, then to come back to this aspect of it is dangerous. Maybe this is another reason why he pairs these two things together, being filled with the Spirit versus being filled with wine. For a Christian, God's presence is indeed invited, induced, and enjoyed not by drunkenness, but by the Holy Spirit, by God's Holy Word, by the bread and the Holy Cup of communion. And this leads you to an entirely different type of speech. We see that in verse 19 begins with speaking or addressing one another. Whereas to be filled with much wine might lead you to loudly and obnoxiously sing that one Chumbawamba song and make an idiot of yourself, being filled with the Spirit results in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I know what you're thinking. Which Chumbawamba song is he talking about? Because they have a very deep and rich catalog. Fair enough. I was thinking of the one that's like, I get knocked down, but I get up again. Never going to get, you know? Maybe not. Maybe you were thinking, what's the difference between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? That one I'm less prepared to answer. That's been a big debate for some reason. And people often flip to this text because they're looking for specifically that. There's worship wars, there's debates about which songs should be sung in church and which songs shouldn't be sung. Do some of them have a license to sing here from the the pen of Paul and some of them don't? This is not the right reason to flip to this passage, but people open their Strong's Concordance or the Greek lexicon and say, let's find some some hints of what he's talking about in the Greek. And I'm going to tell you right now, the Greek's not really any help. The word for psalm is psalmos. The word for him, hymnos. That's like if you speak a tiny bit of Spanish like I do, and you just guess, and you're like, el bibolo, and you're kind of right. So it's not any help, but there's still a lot of debate about this, which is odd because it's not even the point of the text. All the same, I'm 95% sure that Psalms here refers to the Psalms you find in the book of Psalms, a central part of Old Testament worship and New Testament worship alike. Hymns refers to songs of worshipful doctrine, like what we sing today and call hymns. Granted, the Psalms also were written about Jesus a thousand years before Christ, 
But having seen his ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, they were able to sing more specifically about what they loved about Jesus, to call him by name as they praised him. Now they understand that he came once to seek and save the lost and will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now they understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so naturally a hymnody began to form. He quoted one of those hymns just one verse before our text here. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And it is so important that the church have a hymnody, a collection of songs that we all draw on and encourage one another with. I have been at bedsides of of dying Christians whose minds had largely escaped them. And if you start singing a hymn, they will join in in singing that hymn. It becomes central to who they are. Uh, God's designed us, I believe, so that these things are stored in a different kind of memory, in a different part of our brain. And and the, the hymns that encourage us and with which we encourage one another together form almost like an additional lattice of encouragement and comfort in addition to the scriptures. It's also why it's important that we sing good and sound hymns. And I fear that we are losing a hymnody as a church. I fear that young people today who are raised in the church, Christians their whole lives, when they are on their deathbed and they're experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia, there won't be any really locked-in hymns for them to remember who they praise and how they praise Him. And I don't say that because of the move towards singing new songs. We've always sung new songs in the church. All old songs, little-known fact, were once new songs. And it's, and it's good that we sing new songs. No, I'm talking about a move toward a, a sort of disposable approach to music. To, to say, oh, here's a new song, we'll sing it in a little while, we're done with it, throw it away. Here's another new one, sing it in a little while. We're... It used to be that the songs that became the most widely sung had stood the test of time. Now it's the opposite. I know of churches where they say, once a song is six months old, it's old. We don't sing it anymore. It's out the back door. I'm sure there are songs that were written in my lifetime that the church will be singing a hundred years from now if, if Jesus does not come back. The point is that we need to to center ourselves on having a hymnody that together we can obey this instruction, singing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the hymnody here is important. Standing the test of time. And by the way, having a hymnal doesn't necessarily protect against this problem. Our hymnal, the celebration hymnal, we got it in, I don't know, like 2009 or something. And I had been part of a committee at another church in 1997. We got the exact same hymnal. And I loved it then because it was full of all sorts of very contemporary songs. There's some Stephen Curtis Chapman songs in there and some other things. We don't ever sing them here. Nobody does. They're kind of forgotten. They were of the moment. And that's fine. Maybe that's what the spiritual songs here refers to. These songs of the moment. Songs that pour out our hearts to Jesus right now, but will not become part of our hymnody. More likely, though, these aren't intended as three completely separate categories. We saw earlier in Ephesians how Paul likes to pile up words to create an overwhelming point. And I think here, when we read of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he's just describing all the music of corporate worship. The point here is that singing is at the core of who we are as the church at the core of how we praise God and build one another up as well. When there are churches being told 
even in this country right now, oh, you can have a service, you can have your worship service, don't worry, just no singing. That's like saying you can have a meal, just no eating. It's central to the church. It is central to the mission of Christianity as we come together and worship Jesus Christ. Addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does anyone else find it odd that he does not say addressing God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Rather, addressing one another or speaking to one another? That's not a typo. Corporate worship is when we not only praise God together, but strengthen one another as we gather as the church of Jesus Christ to glorify him and edify one another. Edify meaning to build up, like an edifice, to strengthen. Pliny the Elder, writing about 50 years after Ephesians was written, describes Christians, quote, getting together at dawn to recite to one another in turns a hymn to Christ as to God. Did you hear that? Reciting to one another a hymn to Christ. This is the very same thing. It seems that for at least the first few generations of Christianity, fellowship was not entirely distinct from worship. You couldn't separate them entirely. They were interwoven and wasn't just empty chit-chat over coffee before or after the service. There's a place for that, certainly, of knowing what's going on in each other's lives and, and sharing our lives together. But there's also an element of Christian fellowship that's much deeper and rooted in Scripture, rooted in our shared theology, our shared hope in Christ, rooted in these promises of which Paul tells us we are fellow partakers. And this has continued to be the case wherever Christianity has truly thrived. Addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That word making melody, it comes from a a verb that means to pluck. Probably references a stringed instrument of some kind. Like David out there in in Gedi, playing his harp, singing psalms, singing praises to God, only it says this is happening in your heart. It's wonderful when we raise up praise together as Christians. It's an honor when we encourage each other with songs of the Spirit. That can be incredible and strengthening and life-giving. Public praise. But we are also exhorted here to private praise. This should be the state of our heart continually. A worship service inside your heart. What he's describing here is pure joy, even though he doesn't use the word. And it's been a little while since I banged this drum And i got to do it again for just a minute. When he says worship and thanksgiving should be continually in our hearts, that we should be continually about this kind of infilling of the Spirit, he's describing the joy of the Lord, which is something that is incredibly important and incredibly misunderstood. Lately, when I hear the word joy, eight out of ten times, it's part of the phrase sparks joy. This thing sparks joy. I think it comes from that little lady on Netflix who wants to throw all your stuff away to make you happy. Right? Does this spark joy? Does this Huey Lewis and the News cassette really spark joy for you? Well, no, but only because that's not what joy is. Joy is not sparked from the outside, externally. That's happiness. Happiness is dependent on what's happening. Happenstance. Happiness is based on what you have in the moment, what's going on in your life. Joy is far deeper It wells up from within, from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and is present even in lament. The praise song that we sang a moment ago with a blown speaker, I guess, in my amp there, uh, the the song, Blessed Be Your Name. I was at a funeral once where that song was sung. 
And let me tell you, that bridge, you give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name, had a whole lot of different meaning to it in that context. But that is joy. The joy of the Lord endures. This is why Paul can exhort us to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seriously, though, how do I thank God for every? How do I thank God for my problems, for my struggles? How do I thank God for sufferings? Thank Him for what He's building in you through these things. Thank Him for what He is doing in your heart. Thank Him for how He faithfully brings you through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't just leave you there. Thank Him that in Christ, though we die, we will yet live and never perish. And this is joy. Sure, getting drunk can create a temporary high, often followed by a much more enduring low, a pervasive hopelessness. But being filled with the Spirit produces lasting joy. Of course, the world lacks the understanding, the wisdom to see this, because these things are spiritually discerned. In fact, the world often lacks the understanding to see the difference between the two. Drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Going back to the day of Pentecost, the very beginning of the church. Remember, the Holy Spirit came down. The people were filled with the Spirit. They began to preach. And everyone gathered internationally from all corners of the world to Jerusalem for the feast, heard the message in his or her own language, miraculously. And standing by the sidelines were learned, smart people saying, ah, they're drunk. Or literally, they are filled with new wine, which was sort of true in that Jesus called his message new wine and said it would need new wineskins, which had just arrived that very morning, but they did not have the required wisdom to understand. Well, these ordinary, unlearned men and women had that wisdom, having been filled with the Spirit. But talking about Pentecost raises one last question, I think, and it may be the most important one. What exactly does Paul mean when he commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? I see two issues with that right off the bat. Number one, it seems like it's not something I do. It's passive. Be filled with. Not fill yourself with, but be filled with. I mean, like if someone comes up to you and says, hey, be paid more. You'd say, I'd love to, but you're going to have to bring that up with my boss and say, pay him more, pay her more, right? Be filled with. And secondly, isn't this something that already happened at our salvation? Well, second question first. Clearly, since Paul uses an ongoing present tense command here, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's more to it than the one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit when he indwells us at our conversion. There's an ongoing aspect. We might think of this in terms of breath, which makes sense because both the Hebrew and the Greek word for spirit also mean breath. In fact, when Adam is created, God breathes into him the breath of life and he becomes a living soul. So we read in scriptures, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That means everything that's alive, right? You have yet breath in you when you're alive. All of you right now have breath. When you're asleep, you're breathing. You're not even thinking about it. It's just part of being alive. And yet sometimes you will breathe deeply. You will take a deep breath. You will draw in lungfuls of breath, often before doing something difficult or frightening or intense. Or if you're starting to get tired and you want to stay awake and you yawn. I said it. Everyone's got to do it now. One more. Somebody didn't do it and they're about to. The vans will wait. There it is. Okay. 
We will we'll draw in more breath. Perhaps that's a bit of a picture of this. The Spirit empowers believers in a variety of ways. We've read about a number of them, even in this passage already, how he, he gifts some people as teachers, some to serve, some as apostles and all the evangelists and all these things. And our willingness, our openness to him, our being filled by the Spirit is a big part of our sanctification. I think we see some insight here in the parallel passage in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Filling ourselves with the word of Christ, letting it dwell richly in us, inviting the Spirit into us, being open to His his influence in us. Now, when I talk about taking in a deep breath, you might say, does that mean we can also exhale, expel the Holy Spirit from us? Well, you can't expel him, but you can almost crowd out his influence by filling yourself with all sorts of other things that don't matter and, and come in and, and compete for your time and attention and thought. Redeeming the time means being filled with the Spirit. Letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. Building each other up. Praising God. Giving priority to these things. Giving thanks always. That's verse 20. It's a sober thinking. Filled with praise and thanksgiving. Even during evil days. Especially during evil days. Return thanks for every blessing. Make the most of every opportunity. We can redeem the time, but again, we can only do it now. You cannot retroactively redeem yesterday. You cannot, in advance, redeem tomorrow. In fact, that's the, the nefarious nature of procrastination, trying to buy up time tomorrow that you may not even have. And when it arrives, you'll say, oh, I don't have to deal with it. I did yesterday. I've got another tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 6, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to serve Jesus. Now we can worship. Now we can give thanks. Now we can shine our light in the darkness. Yes, the days are evil, but these are the days we've got, and they are ripe to be redeemed. Yes, the days are evil, but this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And lest we think he's talking about only devoting ourselves to religious things, like some kind of monk whose whole schedule is, now I pray, now I read the Bible, now I wander through the garden and contemplate deep things, as if we have the opportunity to redeem our time by just shedding everything else that's part of life. You may be thinking, yeah, it sounds great, but I have very little time left at the end of the day to redeem. Got to bring my kids to soccer. Got to help my grandkids with this Zoom stuff. I don't even get it. I've got to go to school. I work a ton of hours. Our taxes are coming up. There's all sorts of stuff that I've got to do. I don't have a lot of time to redeem here. Well, let me point out what I'm going to point out at the beginning of the next passage. The first thing I'm going to remind you of is that the sentence isn't done here. With Paul, it almost never is, right? He's always like, oh, I got more sentence for you. Don't worry. We got all sorts of more sentence before this thing is over. But here, he tells us that being filled with the Spirit looks like 
addressing each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in our hearts, always giving thanks. And then verse 21, submitting ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ, which leads him into this whole section about different human relationships. We'll get into the submission language and all these human relationships next time, but my point is they're all part of redeeming the time. They're all part of being filled with the Spirit. How you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your parents, going to work, going to church, doing the stuff needed to manage your household, paying taxes. He talks about all of it. And all of it is part of redeeming the time. Life is not one big worship service or mission trip or afternoon volunteering in a soup kitchen for most of us. But we redeem the time all the same. And we redeem the time Anytime these three elements are present. First of all, if we are present in the time. You can't redeem the time without being present in it, and this is a huge problem right now. How many hours in a given day are you actually present? Are you not half-checked out? Are you, are you not distracted, numbed up in your mind, one eye on your phone or your head in the clouds, thinking about things that you have to do tomorrow or things you're worried about that are, might happen today? How often are you really present we have to be present to redeem the time. Secondly, if we're living as unto God for His glory, the Scripture tells us even if we're eating or drinking or whatever we do, do it to the glory of God, as unto God, not unto man. Eating, drinking, working, serving, reading and relaxing, whatever. Do it unto God. Remember, God has given a time for everything. Redeem the time. Save it. Spend it. Don't squander it. And thirdly, if we are returning thanks and praise for everything under heaven, every perfect gift comes from above, everything that we have we get from God, and everything in our lives can be used of God if we are filled with the Spirit. So redeem the time. Maybe you did not do a great job during quarantine and lockdown and all these things, and you're kicking yourself going, man, when in my life am I ever going to have an extended period of time like that? when I could really get something done. Maybe, maybe you didn't even grow that great of a beard. Steve, you, you grew a pretty good one. But listen, every day you have the opportunity to redeem the now, this moment. This is the day the Lord has made. This moment is what you are guaranteed. Redeem the time, careful to grab hold of every opportunity because the days are evil. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this challenge that we find in your scriptures to redeem the time not to squander it not to waste it in drunkenness not to kill it or fill it but lord to be intentional to recognize that every moment is a gift from you a gift to be filled with thanksgiving a gift to be used edifying one another and praising you lord a, a moment during which there ought to be a praise service in our hearts and lord we know that it is easy to fall into a pattern of life where we simply exist and we go through an entire day and don't take even a moment to say, am I redeeming the time? Am I making the best use of this unspeakable gift that I have from my Father? We pray, Lord, that for this Lent and into the next year, that, Lord, we would be people who redeem the time, who say to one another, how can I build you up with songs, hymns, and spiritual psalms? How can we magnify God together, how can we proclaim his goodness? And how can we in everything in our lives, big and little, exciting and mundane, 
redeem these things in the service of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that would be our goal, that would be our mission, and we pray that we would help one another to accomplish it. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.